You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, this is Doc G, and today on Earn and Invest, we're going to talk the history of financial independence with the incomparable J.D. Roth and Grant Sabatier. I used to think I was incredibly clever discovering the financial independence retire early movement until I learned about my step-grandfather. He retired at the age of 49 from dentistry and lived off long-term investments for the rest of his life. He moved from the expensive New Jersey suburbs to cheap Santa Fe and used frugality to cut his bills in half. He fired in the early 1960s and never worked again. He used all the advanced techniques we are so proud of inventing today. He was well ahead of his time or... Or are we just behind? Is anything new anymore? Or are we just recycling old ideas? What is the history and origin of personal finance and financial independence? And when did it begin? Grant Sabatier is an author, podcaster, blogger, and entrepreneur. His best-selling book is titled Financial Freedom, A Proven Path to All the Money You Will Ever Need. And J.D. Roth is the founder and editor of the personal finance blog, GetRichSlowly.org, and the author of Your Money, The Missing Manual. Grant and J.D., welcome back to Earn and Invest. Grant, let me start with you. Let's talk about today's modern financial independence retire early movement. When do you think it began, like this version of it? Yeah, that's a hotly debated topic. I think from what I understand, FIRE as an acronym was birthed out of a Motley Fool forum in the early 1990s, an AOL forum. That's the best data that I have on the topic. I know some people who participated in that forum and they confirmed that to me. Interestingly, it was mentioned around the time when Your Money or Your Life by Joe Dominguez and Vicky Robin was published in 1992. So the early 90s, really kind of post-1980s excess, really, I think, birthed the modern fire movement with both Your Money or Your Life and the mention in the Motley Fool forums. Interestingly, I think 
the fire movement more than anything has to do with the growth and the proliferation of the internet. And it has grown correspondingly started with people conversing in a forum to blogs and now podcasts and YouTube and Instagram and TikTok. And as the internet and its many modes of amplification and participants has grown, so has this idea that you can live life on your own terms and use money to chart your own life path. JD, it's an interesting point. The internet has caused this proliferation. The fire movement has, in a sense, caught fire. But Grant also talked about Joe Dominguez and Vicki Robbins, Your Money, Your Life, 1992, a sentinel work. Many people thought that at least most of the ideas were totally original, Am I right in saying that at least some of the philosophy dates back to Henry David Thoreau? Oh, absolutely. So um, I've actually asked Vicki Robin directly, like, where did you and Joe, Joe especially, because Joe's the one who, who developed these ideas, where did you get the ideas? And uh, she directly attributes uh, Henry David Thoreau and Walden uh, and even Jesus Christ. She says that uh, Joe was motivated by some of his teachings. Uh, but I think it's interesting to look at your money or your life and realize that it, it didn't just spring fully formed from nothing. It was influenced by all sorts of things that came before, both in the distant past, like Thoreau, but also as uh, uh, recently, looking at 1992 when this was published, in, in, in 1988, there was a book called Cashing In on the American Dream, uh, written by Paul Turhorst. And this is, uh, to me... Uh, your Money or Your Life is the first big book in the modern financial independence movement, but uh, cashing in on the American dream to me is the first like real seminal work uh, of the modern financial independence movement, because this is where these ideas were laid out. And Paul Torhorst, he was an accountant who got fed up with the high pressure job and decided, you know what? He was sitting in an airport, I think, and he, he ran some numbers on the back of a napkin or something and said, oh my gosh, if I just quit working... I have enough money to live the rest of my life. And so, so that's what he did. Uh, something like 1984, he just stopped working. And he and his wife, uh, I, I think they traveled the world. I don't, I'm not completely clear on what their story is, but uh, they traveled around and they continued to do so. And so it, it's interesting to look that there is this gradual progression and people like Joe Dominguez and Vicky Robin were influenced, yes, by some longer ago uh, figures, but it, it's, it's a continuous thing it's like we're reinventing the wheel over and over again a lot of times. This concept has been around for a long time, but we just keep rediscovering it. Grant, that begs an interesting question, right? So we have your money or your life. We have your book, Financial Freedom. We can go look at getrichslowly.org. What you guys have done is you've almost produced the cliff notes, the summation, right? <laughs> you've brought it to modern day and brought it all together. Why, Grant and go back and study previous writers? Why delve back into time and look at the history? What does it do for us? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I echo JD's sentiment that I think that everything is being reborn in every moment. I think a lot of these principles, really, they have amplification moments throughout history. And yeah. so what you have in the first books published in the, you know, 
1740s, 1750s, Ben Franklin, this idea of thrift and economy. Ben Franklin is actually America's first early retiree and was extremely frugal and thrifty and wrote about it in Poor uh, Richard's Almanac. Then the idea of thrift actually started uh, at, at the center of the domestic household where finances were actually managed uh, by the, the the wife or the spouse or the woman. This idea of sort of uh, domestic economy. I have a number of books from the 1780s that are focused around sort of simplifying your home and making your money go as far as possible. So these ideas actually, I think, really are core to what it means to be an American and our country built on self-reliance, this idea that you can create the American dream and chart your own course. Fire is simply a fast track to that. It's, uh, you know, the irony is that the American dream now is, you know, work for 30 or 40 years and, and then sail off into the sunset. And I think throughout American history, there's just been this counter narrative that you can, you don't have to choose to do that. It's just, and there are amplification moments from Ben Franklin to Thoreau to uh, Vicki Robin and Joe would be another one. I think Pete and Mr. Money Mustache, you know, relit it for the internet age. And then all I really did was take all of these ideas and put them to practice in my own life and create my own flavor, my own version. So the way I decided to live it uh, was a little bit more hardcore than most people. And I learned a lot through that process. So that's all financial freedom really is, is me standing on the shoulders of all of these giants and using the internet to its fullest capacity to find ways to make money through online side hustles. And every single dollar that I've made and invested has been online. And so I'm that articulation that the internet gives you the ability to fast track that. And now you see even beyond me, uh, online creators who, who, who are going even faster, you know? And, and, and so I, I think there is this natural acceleration of information and ideas that's distinctly American. And the great thing about the fire movement is it's just continuing to change and be reborn in every moment. I mean, a huge inflection point in my life was when I first read Get Rich Slowly. I read Get Rich Slowly before I actually read Your Money or Your Life. And so this idea of frugality that you could save and you didn't have to have a background in money. That was my biggest takeaway in reading Get Rich Slowly is here's a guy, you know, who doesn't have a background in money, who's figuring and who sucks out. with the money. I yeah, have sucked with money. Let's yeah, be clear. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I sucked with the money at the time when I found it. And so, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of these giants. And 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 I and I think the the purity of that message, you know, the truth, capital T truth, tends to to rise, tends to prevail. And, and tends to spread. And I, and I think that, that all of us are really the messengers of, of a message that's far bigger you know, than all of us that's really, really timeless. And I think this is an interesting point. Uh, I recently uh, produced a course, uh, as Grant knows, I'm not sure whether Doc knows this, uh, I, I produced a course for Audible about, the, uh, about financial independence. And it too is just the cliff notes of like what this is what financial independence is. I had an artificial constraint. I had five hours. That was my limit. And so uh, I did five hours worth of material. And the biggest criticism I see in the reviews is that this guy is just like repeating all this other stuff. And I'm like, 
well, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> and what's wrong with that? It's like, I'm, t- I'm trying to distill all this information into one place and produce the Cliff Notes version, just like you said. And like Grant said, standing on the shoulders of those who came before to try to like give this information and uh, produce it in a digestible format. The wild thing, though, is this is going back to what was your actual question for me, uh, Doc G. Why do we go back and look at what's written before? After I wrote Financial Freedom, I discovered a book called Financial Independence from 1908 that was published actually in the Chicago area by a savings and loan company. It's the first book titled Financial Independence that I've ever discovered. Uh, JD and I have chatted a little bit about it. But I read through this book. It actually had a very, very small production run and was only given away to new banking and loan customers for this bank. It was used as a marketing tool. But this book is the best book that I have ever read about financial independence. This thing completely puts my book to shame. And in (laughs) fact, if it was published and I had found it, before I wrote my book, it, it would have saved me a whole lot of time because I probably would have just recommended it instead. This book is extremely well-written, really comprehensive. And I've generally found in my own book exploration and collecting that books written between kind of 1890 and 1915 tend to be the best books ever written on the topic. And I think there's a number of reasons for this. I think there's this rapid industrialization that's happening in the United States, as well as an innate sort of curiosity that's, 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 it's almost like the enlightenment period in the United States. And so you have mm-hmm. writers who just dedicated immense amounts of time uh, and, and curiosity to a particular subject. And, and I really love the book, you know, a lot. And I find that generally uh, that books around the turn of the last century are just incredible resources on a particular topic. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like look back to look forward in a lot of ways. JD, I find this a little disconcerting, right? Because what Grant (laughs) is saying is that some of the best books were written in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And we also go back to times like Vicki Robin, 1992, Joe Dominguez, when they wrote their great book, yet we didn't have those amplification events at those times. Exactly. Like, so why, if the information is out there and you have these people who are throwing it down, telling us how it is, how come it sticks sometimes and doesn't other? Why, as we sit in 2021, are we lauding Mr. Money Mustache? And yet no one read this book in 1908. Well, there there are a number of things going on here. First of all, the whole amplification thing is very, very important. And so if, as Grant's talking about, you're publishing a book called Financial Independence in 1908, and you're distributing it through a bank or a savings loan only in Chicago, well, you're only reaching a limited number of people. And there's really not any way to connect with other people who read this pamphlet or book and get excited about it. Uh, maybe your neighbor has it, maybe they don't. So there's no way to connect with other like-minded people. Here in 2021, it's easy to connect with like-minded people on any number of subjects. Uh, and there are pros and cons to that. We've seen some of the cons in the past year, 18 months. But some of the pros are, if you're researching a topic that tends to be difficult or niche, like financial independence, 
everyone wants to be rich, obviously, but not everyone wants to do the work required to achieve financial independence or to get to early retirement. And so being able to connect with other people who are interested and who are motivated, uh, that's not necessarily amplification, but it is connectivity. And in the modern internet age, we have greater connectivity. So it's easier to connect with other people. And I think one of the reasons that we don't look back to these older things like a 1908 book is just that, although it's great, uh, I'm sure Grant will admit that a lot of the information in there is probably dated or a lot of the examples anyhow. So if he wanted to go through and update it and say, oh, here's this great book I found in 1908, here's an updated version of it. Okay, that might take off and it might be useful. But I know that uh, one of the books that he and I both love is called Money and How to Make It, uh, which is from like the 1870s or something like that. And in it, there's a lot of examples about building wealth with livestock, with sheep and, and pigs. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 these are the actual examples. And they're great. It's a great book. But it's just not necessarily relevant to somebody who might be making their money in social media nowadays. Maybe you're a social media marketer for a large firm or something. And you don't want to learn about achieving financial independence through raising sheep. So let's have a little fun here, Grant. Um, you mentioned 1908 was this book, Financial Independence. Where was the first reference you found to this concept of financial independence? I know that there was this, this term pecuniary independence that you came across. That, that the Pecuniary independence is actually money and how to make it. That's a JD discovery. Uh, I think JD has got a first edition immaculate copy of that book in his collection. And I've only been able to track down a really extremely tattered copy. So JD is the authority on pecuniary <laughs> independence uh, amongst, amongst this group. Uh, but really financial independence, uh, it, it is that 1908 mention Um before it was even before pecuniary independence, it was often this idea of thrift. Uh, you know, e even frugality doesn't make uh, make an appearance. Thrift or economy is often how it's talked about. And one of the reasons for that is, believe it or not, the word financial is a relatively new word, at least in the way that we use it. So before the Civil War, you didn't really talk about financial anything. You talked about pecuniary stuff. And so you never would have had the term financial independence because it just wouldn't have been a phrase that anybody would have thrown together. So pecuniary is the uh, uh, word they would have used instead of financial. JD, what about this idea of frugality? I think I've seen you mention a book from 1832, The Frugal Housewife. Was this idea of frugality common before then? Yeah, it, it, I think frugality and thrift has been a concept that certain people or certain portions of the population have embraced for a long, long time. And the American Frugal Housewife is a perfect example of that. And I think that relates to the type of books that Grant was mentioning earlier, uh, where these concepts were first introduced. At, well, and Ben Franklin's really like the, the first one, and then all these other things came after. You, you see references to frugality and thrift throughout history. You have different people uh, I mean, you can go all the way back to the fable of the ant and the grasshopper, which is what, like 600 BCE or 500 BCE, something like that. Uh, that is essentially frugality and thrift. You've got the ancient Greeks talking about it. Um, and you have parables in the Bible related to finding uh, the frugality and thrift. And so these, these notions have been around for a long time because people have struggled to manage their money for a long time. 
there's this myth that somehow people in the past were better with their money uh, than we are today, but it's just not so. Uh, you have a lot of people, I see articles from time to time about uh, how, well, in my grandfather's day, uh, the depression is a good example. People didn't use debt. They absolutely use debt. Debt has been around for a long time. Consumer debt has been around for a long time. It's not a new thing. It's not like we were somehow financially or pecuniary pure in the olden days. We weren't. People have had these struggles for decades, if not centuries or longer. Yeah, I think it's also important to mention uh, the Scottish author Samuel Smiles, who in 1859 wrote a book, a self-published book titled Self-Help, and actually is credited as creating the self-help genre. Uh, The self-help book became a massive success uh, and, and then started spreading uh, in, into the U.S. Um, and it's actually the first book in a three, I think, three or four part series. Uh, and the third book in that series, actually in 1875, is titled Thrift. But mm-hmm. it's interesting that the creator of the self-help genre, this idea that you can improve your life through optimizations in your physical health and your financial health and your organization and in your business health. Um, you know, money was such a core part of, of that philosophy and of that book. And I think you see from that, obviously, the, the massive multi-billion dollar self-help genre that's been created uh, in the United States. And I, I view financial independence as really an offshoot of that, uh, as a sub-niche topic of that, uh, of that, you know, going diving deeper ultimately into money. And I echo JD's sentiments that when something's being reborn in, in, in each moment, it needs to be localized within the particular climate and the ecosystem um, that we're in. And so you see that now uh, a lot of the self-help books today, you know, they're just e- even something like, you know, Mark Manson's work, um, you know, he's just pulling from, you know, Buddhism and Taoism. And, you know, it's it's kind of like I think we're in like the mash tape, uh, you know, era or the mixtape era of self-help uh, where people are pulling things throughout history. You see a lot of the, obviously, stoicism creeping into financial independence and mindfulness creeping in. And, you know, it it really all is kind of the same thing, you know, at its core. But that's what makes it interesting is because people are able to, 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 to bring it into the present and talk about it through their own experience. And what I think is interesting, Grant, that you, you bring up all this, uh, these examples, Mark Manson and the stoicism stuff, uh, so much of this goes back to simplification and simplicity and simplifying your life. And I don't really have a point that I'm making here other than listening to you. Uh, it, it reminds me that a lot of times when you're talking about frugality and thrift and Walden building his cabin by the pond, it, it's these people trying to just simplify. And I, I think that's an interesting thing that uh, it's not just now that we have this uh, simplicity movement or minimalism movement. It's been going on for a long time. We, uh, it's just this human drive to like make our lives too complicated. The really interesting thing about Thoreau and the problem that I actually have with him is that, you know, he, he, he's viewed uh, as sort of a little bit two-faced within the historical narrative. And he actually, you know, he, he rented uh, Walden Pond, which is on Emerson's he's property. Yeah, exactly. And so that's this idea too. You have to think about that idea of the amplification 
within the financial sort of independence, let's say, movement, you know, there is that criticism uh, that often comes on those amplifiers of, do they really own this? Is this really new? I mean, just go read the reviews of my book and it's like extremely polarized where people are like, oh my gosh, this changed my life, you know, uh, mixed with, oh, I've already heard all of this before. And I actually think that's a really nice place to be because that I think means that you've been been successful in, in sharing something that's that's quite timeless with, with, with an entirely new audience. Um, and, and that's just a, a kind of an interesting idea whenever, whenever, you know, there's always going to be haters uh, attached to, to any sort of truth message that tends tends to persevere. JD, talking about this idea of when we put something out there, is it something new or is it just a repetition of what's been there before? One thing that I don't think there was a lot of reference to until maybe the late 1800s was talking specifically about the stock market. When did the books about Wall Street come to fruition? Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a great question. Uh, Grant might know more than I do on this topic, but from my experience, uh, the books that I have in my collection, the books that I've seen, the stock market really became big in the late 19-teens and into the 1920s because, of course, the stock market boomed during the 1920s. And so uh, there's not a lot of discussion about it in the 30s or 40s, but then getting into the late 40s and into the 1950s, again, the stock market comes back. And in fact, a lot of the books that I have on financial independence or building wealth that were written in the 1940s and 1950s are exclusively about the stock market and nothing else. So uh, I think it's also interesting to bring up the the notion of retirement. You you mentioned the fact that the stock market uh, doesn't come in until late 1800s, possibly, but neither does retirement because the the notion of retirement didn't exist to that. And I I don't want to distract us because I want to maybe Grant knows more about the uh, uh, stock market stuff. But I just, it's interesting to look at those two notions and see that they came around about the same time. Yeah. I mean, the, a lot, a lot of, you know, the stock, the first stock market books that were written in the 1870s, 1880s, late 1800s are really kind of memoir sort of tell all exposés in, uh, you know, Hey, here's a lot of people who are kind of getting rich, trying to get rich quick, and hear the troubles and toils of what it means to be a Wall Street trader. You know, it, it really at that time, it wasn't the average everyday American who was investing in the market. It was just a select group of people. Uh, what you start seeing in in the 1920s and 1930s, and then of course with the work of, of Ben Graham and his book Graham and Dodd and his book Security Analysis, and then you know the intelligent investor Warren Buffett's favorite book. You start seeing strategies come out around you know how to quote unquote beat the stock market. 1920s, 1930s. 1940s, there was just this proliferation uh, with, with the great roaring 20s of here's how you can invest in the stock market. And, and like most things in the money world, probably 95% of it was you know complete BS and just a, a marketing strategy and a ploy. Uh, but you know the books that have persevered, you know, from that time and ideas that have persevered from that time, uh, you know, are, are are everlasting, like value investing and and those those types of things. Uh, and I want to bring up one of the books that I really, really like. I, I, I don't know why I like it. Just, it, I guess it's more homey. It's a book from 1919 that's specifically about investing in the stock market. It's called Financial Independence at 50. 
And it is a collection of essays that were published originally in a magazine. I don't remember the name of the magazine. Wall Street Journal magazine. Wall Street Magazine is what it's called. Okay. And it's great to, to read these essays because they're, they got little charts and they talk about financial independence and where you should be along your journey. But it's all about the stock market and it's 1919. So at least by then, and it was written for the average everyday investor. So at least by 1919, it was possible for a person if they had interest to invest in common stocks and to make money. And there really weren't that many companies back then too. So there's always right, exactly. there's like very, very few companies, very few industries. Like the earliest stock market books are like on how to invest in grains and, you know, different commodities. <laughs> and, you know, it's very... It's very, very simple uh, in that case. We're talking with J.D. Roth from GetRichSlowly.org and Grant Sabatier, The Financial Freedom Book. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Do you ever wish you invested early in some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Professional VC research identifies promising companies and funds across a range of sectors, stages, and global locations. Our crowd is investing in medical technology, breakthroughs in ag tech and food production, solutions in the multi-billion dollar robotic industry, and so much more. You can learn more and get in early at ourcrowd.com EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The our crowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash EAI. Let me reintroduce JD Roth and Grant Sabatier, part of the Financial Independence Retire Early Movement. Grant, we've talked about how wonderful some of these early personal finance and financial independence books were. Is there anything we're doing better today in the current literature that they weren't able to do back then? Wow, that's a really good question. I don't know. I I really don't know. I think that you know, we have this myth that things back in the day 
were perhaps a little bit slower and a little bit easier. But that's, of course, a complete myth because early 1900s, you know, you've got the First World War, you've got extreme economic sort of disparity. And so life, life has always been hard for most Americans. There is a level of idealism that I see in books that are written early in the 20th century. This dawn, there's a belief that not only can you make it, but that we can make it. I think there was a collective focus. I think there was a high level of patriotism in the United States, a high level in belief in community. I think we were much more united as a people and a nation. What you see now in a lot of the work, I think a lot of the financial independence movement, there is this sort of libertarian bent where it's me, myself, and I you know, critical of big government, you know, I'm going to get one out on the government. I'm going to pay zero taxes by keeping my income zero. You know, there is this sort of like me, myself, and I narrative within the movement that, that I don't particularly like. Um, so, and there's just a level of skepticism generally. No, your money's not going to last you forever. No, that's not going to work. You know, once this hit the mainstream media, they just could not and still do not fathom that there is a different <laughs> way to live, even when you show them how you did it. Me introduce people, many people, and show them people from the past who have done it. Exactly. I mean, for some reason, it's just it's just counter to this 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 capitalist narrative which is ironic generally uh because capitalism is what makes financial independence possible but somehow the media just just wants to push push against it just like they do yeah, most good ideas anyway so i think grant's onto something there and i think one other difference uh that i see anyhow is when you look at the information that was produced in the past, the books that were written in the past, the uh, frugal housewives from the early 1800s, notwithstanding, generally speaking, these were wealthy white men paying for wealthy white men. And I'm not trying to be political here. It's just what it was. These were people who had money and uh, they come from positions of power and they're writing for other people who have money and come from positions of power. So one way that the financial independence movement is different today is that there is a much greater proliferation of voices from people across the spectrum of wealth, uh, gender, race. You've got all sorts of different people producing material to try to help people at different stages of the journey. A lot of the conversation in the past couple of years has been centered on how can we help people with lower incomes uh, achieve financial independence, or at least greater financial independence, because this gets to what, uh, one of my pet subjects, how financial independence isn't one thing, it's a spectrum. I really like that we've moved from this kind of echo chamber where it's a certain group of people writing for each other. And now we're, uh, we have more people writing for a wider range of audiences. Uh, and so we can help more people. I like that. Grant, let's ride off this idea of a broader range of audiences. I feel like the tenor of personal finance books changed a little in the 1980s and 1990s with Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey and Robert Kiyosaki. 
One of the things that might have changed is the ease of credit. I know that the rise of credit cards started sometime in the 50s and 60s. Has debt become a bigger part of the modern conversation? Yeah, I think debt absolutely has become not only a part of the modern conversation, it's pretty much the only conversation. And so what happened was before when credit, you know, it was at your local bank or you borrowing from a friend, once it became, you know, widely available, people got themselves into trouble pretty quickly. And so personal finance shifted from being, here's how to manage your home and your family responsible to here's how to climb out of whatever hole that you unfortunately have found yourself in. And so it's this shift from somewhat of an abundance to a scarcity mindset. You know, you start seeing a lot in even the 80s and 90s, the work of Kiyosaki and Orman. And, you know, there's there's an element of shaming involved uh, in their approach and Dave Ramsey's work where it's kind of like, you got yourself into this pit and now you got to get yourself out. Of course, sort of systemically, there's a lot of reasons and educationally why people have, have fallen behind. But I do still think that personal finance, unfortunately, has sort of a shaming negative, you mess this up, you're broken, you're wrong narrative associated with it. And, and, and that's from those sort of legacy creators. I don't know, you, you watch one of Susie Orman's seminars and you just don't feel very good about yourself once you get through it. Uh, that was one of the things I was extremely focused on in my own work is, is taking a positive slant. I know that, you know, a lot of what I did, I, you know, co-opted from JD in that sense where there's this positive mindset of, hey, I'm going to figure this out. Hey, you know, I, I'm smart. I, I can do this. You know, there's a positive optimistic tone to it. Hey, I didn't know anything about this, but you can do this too. Um, that, that, that's extremely important. And, you know, when you want to motivate others to change their life, I mean, this stuff, you know, it's not complicated, but it's not easy by any means. And so, you know, I think it's all of our responsibilities to, you know, help people understand, you know, not only how the system works, but, you know, that there are other ways to live, um, and that focusing on debt or student loan debt or talking about it really distracts from this idea that we live in such a remarkable time in history where it's so much easier to live the life that you want in a way that wouldn't have been possible even 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And Grant, I think you bring up something important or at least skirted the edge of it. And there's a lot of debate on a policy level about the problems with this country. And you can argue one side or the other, and that's great. And I think we should, as a society, address the systemic issues that hold people back. But ultimately, regardless of how the politics shape out, each of us as individuals need to take responsibility for whatever cards we have been dealt. It doesn't matter whether you've been given good cards or bad cards. You need to play what you've been given and just do your best within that context. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you should just like accept your fate, but I'm saying that if you're in a crappy situation, it, accept that you're in a crappy situation. For myself, I was born in a poor family and uh, grew up poor. My parents didn't know how to manage money. And so when I got out of uh, school, I ended up in deep in consumer debt. I did dig my own hole. I'll shame myself here. I, I made some poor choices. 
ultimately, I had to figure out how to get out of that debt and how to build wealth. And so all of this, I, I think it's both I think it's important that we address both uh, aspects, I guess. Look at the the broader, the bigger picture and figure out, okay, how can we make it easier for everyone to get ahead? But at the same time, as we're doing that, look at our own lives, our individual lives, and say, okay, this is my situation here. What are the steps that I, as an individual, need to take to improve my own life? Grant, did you come across any texts, let's say before 50 years ago, that talked about some of the systemic issues as opposed to just the personal issues? Not a whole lot. I mean, that that's a different, the sort of political narrative and even just the field of economics generally uh, is something that, you know, it's its own subfield, you know, from Keynesian economics and this, you know, what can people do or Milton Friedman, you know, what, you know, is it the system or is it the person and how do we structure society in this way? I mean, you can go all the way back to, you know, Marx or Adam Smith. I mean, you know, Marxism is fundamentally about the alienated laborer. I mean, right. the idea today that so many people are unhappy with their jobs and quitting has a direct line to the fact that capitalism, a byproduct of it, is that most people have bullshit jobs. There's this amazing David Graeber book. He unfortunately just passed away recently. He's a professor. It's called Bullshit Jobs. And it's built on this idea that most jobs within capitalist societies like the United States, it's just middle managers and your cogs in a system and their jobs that really don't matter. They're jobs for jobs sake. They don't matter a whole lot. And when you're in them, you feel like you're not creating a lot of value or a part of a lot of value creation. And so you naturally feel stuck in your life. And so, you know, that that's that goes back to, to Marxism generally. And I think, you know, this idea that within any capitalist company, you're in a legal pyramid scheme, like I talked about in my book, <laughs> you know, na naturally the money kind of flows to the top. And so when you're close to the top, you can be kind of happy because you're making more than the person below you. But when you're in the middle or in the bottom, you know, it's, it's just not a really good place to be. And I think, thankfully, one of the silver linings of this pandemic is that people are recognizing and waking up to the fact that they're not willing to make that trade-off for, for, for their life that they were before. And so you don't see systemically a whole lot written in the personal finance narrative. Everything is naturally political. You know, unfortunately, personal finance has is really kind of a dumbing down of a lot of ideas uh, that, that existed throughout history. And that's just a byproduct. You read Helene Olin's book, Pound Foolish. You know, a lot of people writing about personal finance have something to sell you. And I think one of the things about JD's work and my work and Vicky's work, and, you know, if I can put myself briefly in, in, in you know, or even Pete's work, it's that, you know, we don't really have anything to sell you. You know what I mean? There's not some massive $20,000 Tony Robbins style mastermind <laughs> you can buy into. And so I'm grateful for that, that a lot of the content creators yeah. these days, you know, it, 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 it stands on its own because it's not being used. And that's the challenge with the fire movement now. And I gotta, I gotta share this because I think now in the last two years, fire, once it's spread is really in a lot of cases being used uh, as a marketing ploy to get people into high, you know, high cost, low quality investments or coaching programs or courses. And so naturally with any language, 
it runs its course. And I, th- I think fire's really been co-opted uh, in that case, which, which kind of makes me sad, uh, but it's the natural cycle uh, of a lot of things, but the idea will persevere, you know, it, it'll <laughs> run, it'll run its, co- you know, even fire will run its course, but the ideas I really do believe are timeless. That's interesting. I've seen other people refer to these expensive courses. And so I haven't seen any of them myself. I just know that there are people out there complaining about uh, how people are trying to sell expensive courses right in the back of the fire movement. But I I wanted to mention, Doc, that uh, in my reading, I don't see any like uh, addressing of the systemic issues in the personal finance manuals of uh, the 19th century or even the first three quarters of the 20th century. It's only really once you get to uh, maybe Vicki Robbins' work that the uh, systemic stuff begins to be part of the conversation. Um, But I think it's important to note, and I know I just kind of touched on this a a few moments ago, but I I feel like it's a false dichotomy. You've got people on one side saying, we've got to talk about the systemic stuff. It's the systemic stuff that's holding everybody back. And you've got people on the other side saying, no, it's all about individuality. It's all about individuality. And it's not an either or thing. That is a false dichotomy. You can address both. Both things are important. We need to have a system that works and it's equitable for everybody, but you've also got to take individual responsibility for your situation, whatever your situation happens to be. We're talking with J.D. Roth from GetRichSlowly.org, as well as Grant Sabatier, the Financial Freedom Book. I'm Doc G. We're going to take a short break. This is the Earn and Invest Podcast. If you've been listening to this show and trying to figure out how do I increase my top line, one way is through real estate. And when I want to learn more about real estate, one of my favorite places to go is the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. This podcast is all about how to use real estate as an asset class to get ahead towards financial independence. There are two types of episodes, one in which the coach himself gives you all the tips and tricks on how to make money in real estate. The other is where he has guests, proof of concept, real life examples of people out there like you and I making real estate work towards their financial independence plan. It is a wonderful podcast. I hope you check it out. Go to coachcarson.com. Again, that's coachcarson.com. Take a listen. You won't regret it. We're back with J.D. Roth and Grant Sabatier. Grant, you were talking about a moment ago, the FIRE movement has been at times co-opted for people who are trying to make money. We've noted that at least the last decade or so has been that amplification period for the FIRE movement. Does it die out? I mean, we've gone back in history and looked at all these books that were talking about financial independence in the 1900s and pecuniary independence. In the 1800s, we know that Ben Franklin retired at the age of 42 in the 1700s. Are we bound to 100 years from now, someone be searching through the library and find Grant Sabatier's book and be like, oh my God, he was talking about this 100 years ago. He's talking about financial freedom, man. Well, I hope they find the 1908 <laughs> book, Financial Independence, instead of mine. That's a really great question. I, I think naturally... 
for new things to be born, things have to die. And, and I think that, that, you know, fire has had a good run. I, I think it'll continue to, to be prevalent probably for the next, you know, couple of years, just as people are latching on to, to a way to explain a different way to live. But really the success of any movement comes when it's no longer talked about, when it's become part yeah. of the mainstream, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, gay rights or feminism, feminism or yeah. you know it's it's just it becomes such a part of the culture that people are like oh that's just that's a different way to live they don't have to label it as anything specific i think we're getting closer and closer to that um naturally people need a way to explain it to people who don't understand what it is internationally I, I do see growth. Uh, you know, my book has yeah. sold extremely well, uh, as has uh, JL Collins and, and Christian Bryce's, you know, in Japan, in Taiwan, in Malaysia, you know, th- th- these these places in South Korea. Um, you, you know, so the message globally has gotten legs and I think fire is an easy way for it to spread, uh, you know, g- globally, but I, I do think it's becoming more and more part of the mainstream, uh, and, and, and has, you know, a, a little, a couple years left, but looking back, you know, a hundred years from now, you know, I'll echo, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, who I both love and hate for, for, for many reasons, <laughs> um, you know, who, who, who said, I, there's an amazing interview in the late nineties where he's like, you know, people in a hundred years will look back at through the dawn of the internet as this enlightenment sort of golden age. And I, and I think that fire financial independence, this idea that you can from anywhere in the world on your mobile phone and computer, create value and make money to live your life and power your life. I, I, I think that, and you don't have to be this massive corporation. You can create a course or uh, create content and, and amplify your message to the world. I think this will be viewed, you know, along those lines, uh, you know, and, and this is really representative of that more than anything else. You know, we all say kind of money only matters, you know, if it helps you live a life you love. And I do believe what I see now on Instagram and, and the internet and TikTok, you got, you got people younger than all of us who are living incredible lives uh, in ways that we wouldn't have thought possible. And they're doing it because they have their computer and they can live anywhere and they can make money any way they want. And they're crushing it on YouTube or Twitch or, you know, whatever. I love seeing that, you know, th- those are things that just really weren't available, you know, to, to us 10 or 15 years ago. And I think, I think this really is the golden age uh, of the internet and, and fire really wouldn't exist without the internet, because if not, you would have had to go clock in to your factory job, the only factory in town, uh, and, and, and be, be at the, um, mercy of, of the company that could move the factory out at any given time. I I disagree that fire wouldn't exist without the internet because it did exist without the internet. Um, it it just would be small. It would be much smaller. I think there's a difference between frugality and fire. I, I think there's there's a difference between those two things. Um, I think that being an entrepreneur in some way is a core part of fire in in, in today's narrative. Obviously, it's a choose your own adventure, but I think that being frugal and working at a job for 20 years or being a dentist in your local town, you know, I, I think that is that is one path to financial independence. But I think this this idea of fire living life on your own terms has only expanded. Uh, because you can take kind of the location um, 
and and you can and democratize the information. You know, that's the thing. I wouldn't exist. I did. I wouldn't know this life was possible if I hadn't have somehow. Sure, I stumbled sure. on your it's, it's the connectivity. Exactly. It, it, what I'm thinking of is the examples, most of the examples that I know in real life of people who have achieved financial independence, they are not people who are doing internet work. It, it's not people who are doing blogs or videos or, or in any other ways, uh, making money from online. I think of uh, the, my ex-wife's neighbor. He's a retired shop teacher. And he achieved financial independence uh, through savvy investing and just and, and frugality, a combination of the two. And uh, he's now like 85 years old, but he did a great job with that. And he achieved fire without having those labels for it. And I think of the people who here, I live in the Portland, Oregon area, and I often meet with readers when we don't have a pandemic. And uh, I've met with many, many readers and none of the people that I've met with are people who are actively involved in making money online. They're people who are career counselors at local colleges or uh, who are, there's a car salesman I know who, who's working towards financial independence. These are people who are approaching the subject and who are motivated to pursue early retirement, uh, but without the internet. But I do agree that the connectivity makes it a lot easier uh, to get the information and to uh, spread the message. Yeah, that's all I mean. The internet, you're meeting with those readers because they found you through the internet and you're able to invest on, you know, your phone or, you know, it's this, it's this access to to information and money-making is just another potential, even if it's not directly making money, it's the fact that you can look on Glassdoor and see your salary compared to someone else to your company or, you know, it's just the, the more transparency of, of information. JD, how do you think the pandemic has changed things? Above and beyond the acceleration from the internet, has the pandemic itself changed the fire movement? I don't know. That is a great question, Doc. There, it, you and I were talking before the show about how we feel like there's been this great pause. Those aren't the words we use, but there's been like this, uh, at this point, almost 18-month pause where we haven't talked to people, we haven't uh, uh, seen people in person we haven't had the conversations that we used to have all the time. And so I, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't have a good feel for what people are doing, how people are uh, handling their jobs. I know a number of people were out of work for many months. My, my girlfriend, who's a dental hygienist, I think she spent three months without work. So that affected her ability to save. She had to live on her savings. It set her goals back a while. I don't know. I don't have any easy answers for this. I'm curious to see what happens as we pull out, if we pull out of this whole thing. Grant, the pandemic, how do you think it's changed things? I think it's largely been positive for the financial independence movement. I think the savings rate in the United States hit an all-time high. You know, it's kind of looking at the silver lining here. It's like, so we're saving more money. We're being more intentional about how we spend the money. The people who have been invested have a little bit fatter of a nest egg and have acquired a little bit more freedom. I think generally too, one of the benefits is is that we have realized both individually and as a culture, just how fragile life is and how something can change so rapidly that you can only 
you know, and not just life, but our economy, the the whole society, I feel like over the past 15 months, 18 months, I feel like I've recognized that society in general and and the economy is pretty fragile too. Yeah. It's the illusion of control. You know, I, I think we all feel like for some reason that we can control, you know, when we're going to die or what's going to happen in our life, but we actually have so little control over what's going on. And I think it's really hard to, to recognize and, and kind of embrace that. Uh, and I, and I think that's what we're forced to reckon with. We're all told now that there's likely going to be another pandemic perhaps in our life. And we actually have been let off relatively easy with this one compared to something that could come in and just kill everyone. And so life is fragile. I think that, you know, the beautiful thing about money is that it does allow you to acquire freedom in your life to make different choices. And you're seeing that play out. People aren't going back to jobs they hated. There there were 5.7 million new businesses started last year. People are choosing to live life on their own terms. <laughs> people are stuck at home and they've got to figure out. Yeah, I think it's I, yeah. I think it's both. So it's kind of yeah. like, you know, it's shaking everything up. And thankfully, uh, there there was this fire narrative that was out there uh, and people have latched onto it. They're saying, oh, wow. If I can save a little bit more money, I can acquire more freedom. And like JD said, it's just a spectrum and it's a choose your own adventure. The important thing is that you choose your own adventure. And so the better you know yourself and the more aware and the trade-offs you want to make and, you know, the easier it is. If you don't choose your own adventure, somebody's going to choose it for you. This is an important thing that I think people just don't realize. If you don't choose where you're going, somebody else is going to make that choice for you and you probably won't like it. I think that's the mic drop right there. Yeah, well, I was going to say what, what I've really enjoyed about listening to you guys talk about the history of personal finance and financial independence is that when you go back and you look at these books, you realize that, yes, indeed, we recreate the wheel over and over again, but we always get a slightly different product. And the yeah. different product we get is because we live in different times And we have different needs. And one of the joy of knowing both of you is that you've been part and parcel of creating that content, which has helped us, the greater us, improve the product that we are working on right now. No doubt in 100 years, things will be different. Yet the base that we've formed and the incremental gain that we've added has meaning. And I think it has meaning in our lives. And I think it has meaning in the lives of people who are just trying to make better lives for themselves. I want to thank you both for coming on. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next and where can we find you on the internet? JD, why don't you go first? What's going on? Oh boy. You know, that's a loaded question for me. Uh, What's up next? Well, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that I live in Portland. I've lived in the Portland area all my life, but hey, I'm moving. Uh, I may be giving up the personal finance gig entirely to pursue art school, but maybe not. Who knows? Right now, uh, Grant was just talking about how the pandemic changed things. For me, it's like forced me to reexamine what do I really want to do with my life? And the answer to that is I want to live someplace where I'm happy and do things that make me happy. And that's what I'm going to do. And at this point, if people want to get in contact you, how can they reach you? They can find me at getrichslowly.org. Uh, I'm still writing there irregularly, at least for the foreseeable future. And Grant, what is up next for you and where can people find you if they want to interact? It's about 71 degrees here. I think I'm going to take a bike ride uh, (laughs) after this and enjoy 
my uh, my Tuesday afternoon. I've done enough talking uh, for for the day. Um, if you want to check out my own writings about money, I just wrote a post that I'm particularly proud of: uh, 50 things that I that I've learned about money uh, really uh, over the past uh, 10 years. And you you can find that at grantsabatier.com. Uh, check that out. Um, if you're in, listen to this in South Korea, the new edition, second edition of Financial Freedom is out. Go pick it up. Completely revised and updated for these times. Yes. And if not, you can find my book, uh, Financial Freedom, at your local library. If they don't have it, ask them to order it, get it for free wherever you can. And on social media, hit me up at Millennial Money on Twitter. At Millennial Money Com on Instagram. This has been so much fun. This has been the highlight of my day. Awesome. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank JD Roth and Grant Sabatier. That's a wrap. That was a lot of fun, nice, guys. Jeff. Yeah, I liked it. That was uh, that covered just so much stuff that that I did. <laughs> there was a lot in there. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, and and my point was, you know, the whole point of the talking about the history, besides the fact that the history and the books are cool, is actually to get to that second half of okay, like what what does this mean? And I, and so that was a lot of fun because yeah. I think with that last half or quarter, which is what exactly what I wanted. We really spent a lot more time just kind of talking about, so what does this mean to us? Yeah. I thought your question about, uh, do the old books address the systemic stuff? I thought that was very interesting because they don't. They, really they don't. don't. No, they well, don't. It, you know, it wasn't a concern, which again is, it speaks a lot about how the world has changed. And we know it's fundamentally and incrementally changed. The interesting thing is, the world wasn't any more just back then than it is now. It's just we're talking about it now. Yeah. Right. So it, yeah. it was, you know, it was just assumed that whoever wrote a lot of these books were probably white men or maybe women who were running households. But you weren't getting any of the voices of the people who are struggling kind of at the lower dregs of, of, of yeah. the economic society at the point. Grant, I, I didn't know you were writing at grantsabatier.com. I'll have to go check that out. I, I mean, I am loosely. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one of the, yeah, I am, I am loosely. I actually wrote the post for Millennial Money, but I'm like syndicating my content I write on Millennial Money that Molly Fool pays me for on my own website. Because why not? Um, yeah, why not? That was a good post. I read it. Yeah, it's polarizing. <laughs> Got a lot of traffic. Definitely got a lot of traffic. Grant, is everything is polarizing. And the more popular you yeah. are, the more polarizing it is. Yeah, so it's just people are just like, uh, but. You yeah, know who is it polarizing? Yeah, Someone so no one it. reads. What? <laughs> it's polarizing for the two people that do read the first. <laughs> I'm over the polarization. So over it. Man, you got, you got, yeah, just, just distance yourself from it, dude. Well, that's the plan. That is, yeah. Let's like, like go. Maybe make economy your last thing or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. Gotta, yeah. Go ahead. Got to put a stake in the sand or something. Just be like, I'm going to take. I mean, say. I mean, just 
just yeah just don't participate in it you know you don't have to no and then, and then we're gonna right. have to do You're a bunch right. of like og events for people who don't really want to talk about personal finance but just like hang out with each other exactly i love that stuff <laughs> go hang out with the cabooses or uh, uh, go to the camp fis just to hang out whatever. i just don't see that polarization i just because i'm not as deep in it as you i don't i don't literally talk to anyone in the personal finance world at all um you know i just kind of stay in my own little corner tech moves fast so keep pace with the daily crunch podcast from TechCrunch. with new episodes every day this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups new tech regulations and more listen to TechCrunch daily crunch now wherever you get your podcasts that's TechCrunch daily crunch wherever you get your podcasts